The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God anointed, appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that, everything, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Thanks so much, Brad. Uh, my name is Matt Pamplin. I'm one of the pastoral staff here at St. Clair. And if you're joining us uh, for the first time, maybe on live stream, we want to welcome you. We're closing out a series uh, that we've called Reimagining Church. One of the things uh, I want to say before we dive in is we theologically believe the church is a family that is different people from different backgrounds who are brought together, centered around the person of Jesus. And 
This week for the Baker family, it's actually their last week with us. I was going to say in person, but maybe on our live stream. And we just uh, just wanted to say uh, we love you, Baker family, Charles and Rachel and the kids, uh, how much you've invested in our community. Uh, Charles is going to be studying, and so his studies have taken him uh, and the family to London. Uh, but we just want to acknowledge them as part of our family and just thank them for all the ways they've invested in the community. Um, you're still our family. You just happen to be living a little bit further away. As I said, uh, we're in a series called Reimagining Church. And what's happening in Acts chapter 10, the scripture that Brad read is so important for the shift that takes place in the book of Acts. And if you've ever had one of those moments where you would say, this was what I would call a paradigm shift in my life, where my worldview changed or something happened that changed how I saw the world around me. A few years ago, uh, probably many years ago now, sadly, I was uh, with an organization called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. I was about 18, 19 years old, and I got to go to India for three months. Uh, so I was brought up in England, fairly middle class family uh, in the center of the UK, and going to India completely revolutionized my thinking on the world. I often say that God uh, wrecked me in the best possible way in India. And there was one particular moment we went to visit uh, Mother Teresa's orphanage and one of the nuns that was working there handed me one of these children and said to me, Matt, could you just hold on to this child and give them some physical affection because it actually can help prolong their life because they've been so severely neglected. And she was telling me the stories of some of these children. And as an 18-year-old, I couldn't hold it anymore. I just remember weeping while holding this child. And my trip to India really did almost break open some of the boxes on how I saw the world. And what's happening in Acts chapter 10 is a paradigm-shifting moment, particularly for Peter and for the early church. One theologian says Acts chapter 10 is the hinge point of the book of Acts. We see Peter getting a vision for the Gentiles and that they are now invited into the promises and into the family of God. We also see the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. All the theologians say Acts chapter 10 is the Gentile Pentecost that we saw earlier in Acts chapter 2. See, the book of Acts starts out by Jesus saying, the Holy Spirit is coming and I want you to be my witnesses, to bear witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for many of us, maybe we see that as geography, but for Jesus, it's also deeply cultural. He's sending them to places and people they would not expect to go to. Before we dive into this morning, I want to say thank you for a few people who've been messaging us about this series. When we prepped for the series, we really felt it's important that we are not trying to rebrand the church. We're trying to reimagine the church. We called it Reimagining Church because, let's be honest, we actually need to. At the moment in our world, I've had a few people message me about their angst and frustration about who the church is. In many ways, people just being so disappointed in the church. And I just want to say a couple of things. One is I understand your frustration. That's why I think we need to reimagine this thing called the church. But always remember the church is a people. And if you claim to follow Jesus, somehow you're tied in to this thing. 
And we do need to think through how does it become this thing that Jesus always longed for it to be. Because here's the thing, Jesus is actually the head of the church. It doesn't belong to us. We're participants in this thing. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says these terrifying words I've shared many times before, that the church is the manifold wisdom of God in the world. Eugene Peterson has this beautiful line. He says, the church has never been successful. Often we can look at the book of Acts with misty eyes and rotinted glasses. But actually, when we read the book of Acts, we recognize the messiness of the church. But it's always thrived when it's been what we see as this creative minority in the world. The other thing I would want to say, and this is really important, is if you're part of the church, you're also part of something way bigger than the North American church. The church is multicultural and a global phenomenon. If you say you follow the resurrected Jesus, then these people around the world connected to church are actually your brothers and sisters. See, church is fundamentally a people, but it's diverse and ecumenical. The church is so multifaceted. In Europe, it meets in cathedrals, and in Africa, it meets under trees. In China, it meets underground, and in India, it meets in slums. It meets in soccer stadiums and jails. It's ornate, and it's simple. It's historic, and it's multicultural. For this next season, we're going to be meeting in homes and backyards and parks, which sounds like the book of Acts. But if we're part of the church, we're part of something so much bigger than what we see here. And that's really important for us to remember. Even this beautiful book that we look at reminds us that the church didn't originate here, but is actually part of this beautiful movement out of the East. So let's dive in to the passage. I actually want to kind of span Acts chapter 10. Brad read from the second half of Acts chapter 10, and we'll look at that. But I just wanted to pick out some themes from the whole of the chapter. If you read Acts 10 and then Acts chapter 11, what we notice is this vision that Peter has and its connection to Cornelius is deeply important because Luke actually retells Peter's vision three times. He tells when Peter has the vision, he tells when Peter explains it to Cornelius, and then in Acts 11, he tells it when Peter goes back to Jerusalem to talk to the disciples. See, what is happening and what Luke is trying to say is this is a seismic shift in the church. In Acts chapter 10, it starts out with Cornelius, this Roman officer, being met by an angel. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 2. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. What we notice in Acts chapter 10 is the movement of God's people from the Jews to the Gentiles starts with God himself. God is the initiator. God meets with Cornelius through an angel and then God meets with Peter through a vision and God speaking to Peter. The disruption in the story is God-centered. The movement of including Gentiles and this movement of people towards one another from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds starts with God himself. 
Dr. Willie Jennings, who wrote a brilliant commentary on the book of Acts, says this. The book of Acts speaks of revolution. We must never forget this. It depicts life in the disrupting presence of the Spirit of God. There is only one central character here in the story of Acts. It is God, the Holy Spirit. And what's happening here in the New Testament mirrors what happened through the whole of the story of Scripture. See, God's people were always meant to be a people who went and reached out to people not like them. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, I want you to go with my blessing. If it was me, I would love to stop there. But here's what God says to Abraham. Oh, it's not just to bless you. It's so you can bless those around you, the nations of the world. God gives Israel the law in the Torah, in the Old Testament. And rooted there in this teaching is how they're meant to treat outsiders. This is what it says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The prophets show up and remind God's people who they're meant to be. Isaiah 49, you are meant to be a light to the Gentiles. We see this continuing in the life of Jesus. It's interesting as we read Acts, because so much of Acts is the outsider coming inside. And that's what we see when Luke writes his gospel. Most commentators say it's the movement from the outside to the inside. Those who shouldn't be welcomed get to come in. And we see that throughout the life of Jesus. See, what I'm trying to say here is Peter didn't come up with a master plan and decide that he knew how to best bring the Gentiles into the family of faith. He didn't sit down and come up with the best strategic campaign that had long-term goals for the growth of the church. An angel encountered Cornelius and then Peter had a vision from God. This wasn't Peter's great idea. This was God initiated. It's interesting to note that both Cornelius and Peter's encounter both come in the place of prayer. At St. Clair, we talk about these rhythms of prayer that we want to have in our life, maybe this uh, rule of life around prayer. And that's just not a good idea St. Clair came up with. It's actually rooted in the life of the church. It talks about Peter at noon and Cornelius at three having these specific times of prayer. And that's where God encounters them. I was thinking this week about the link between reconciliation and prayer and justice. And I came across this brilliant article. And when I'd finished reading the article, I realized my friend Aaron White from Vancouver had actually written the article. But I didn't know that at the start. And this is what he says. Justice, prayer and reconciliation are fundamentally interconnected with God's purpose for humanity. We were made for intimacy with God and we were made to do good. Prayer calls us back to the practice of intimacy. It's not simply a functional tool for intercession, mission or justice. I remember sitting in room four, 504 of the Empress Hotel, overlooking Maine and Hastings in Vancouver. I asked God if I was wasting my time in prayer when there was so much visible pain on the streets below. 
Yes, came the response. Waste your time on me. I am worth wasting your time on. This is why when people ask me if prayer works, I say yes every time. I don't always get an answer, but I always get an audience. I feel like that's where you're like, amen, if you are listening to me out there. I don't always get an answer, but I always get an audience. We were made to pray. Intimate communion with God will endure in glory beyond tears, injustice, mourning and intercession. So it's really interesting. One commentator noted Peter's vision that he shares came at a time of prayer, but also a time of hunger. What are the things we most hunger for that we long to see in the world? Do we actually have this deep place of hunger that is met with our deep place of prayer? One question I asked myself this week is, do I pray as much as I complain about what's going on in the world? Would I be willing to pray and God use that to give me a deep hunger and desire for him to be at work in the world? When Cornelius has this vision, it's interesting to me that it says, the angel says to him, I've noticed your prayer and your giving to the poor. This should encourage a lot of us that God recognises what we do and he notices, especially when there's no fanfare around. See, it's easy for us to do things that get noticed, but the angel says to Cornelius, oh, when no one else notices your prayer and your giving, God actually noticed. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's terrifying to me that Jesus says four times in Matthew 6, oh, when you do these things in secret, prayer, fasting, and giving. Were we willing to be faithful when no one else notices what we do? I love that also the angel says, oh, Cornelius, God notices your action. This is a quote that I heard a few years ago from a Massey lecture. It's from a Persian human rights lawyer. And I think it speaks to this part of the story, but also our cultural moment. The problem with the world is not a shortage of theories or feel-good slogans. The problem is we confuse proliferation of progressive terminology with empathy and engagement. We say the right things, but we fail to act on them because we want to feel virtuous without paying a price. And what we notice here is God sees what Cornelius does that's intertwined with his prayer. Prayer leads him to giving to the poor. So as we see this story unfold, an angel has met Cornelius, then Peter's on this rooftop, he's in prayer and hunger, he has this vision of this sheet that comes from heaven and different animals that are on it. And God says to him, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, how can I eat these? Because they're unclean. And God says to him, do not call unclean what I have called clean. So then Peter is sent for by these um people that Cornelius has sent. And so Peter ends up coming to the house of Cornelius. And this is what it says in verse 27. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me I should not call anyone impure or unclean. What is happening here 
is a shift. And for Peter, this must be horrifying. He's being sent not only to a Gentile's house, as Peter said, this is not a place I should be. I kind of feel uncomfortable coming here. But he's also going to the home of a Roman officer. They are the people that are oppressing God's people. And Peter steps into this unfamiliar space way outside his comfort zone. Dr. Willie Jennings, who I referenced earlier, has this brilliant reflection on this moment in Acts. He says, the Holy Spirit is sent to comfort his people. But almost everybody in the book of Acts is being compelled by the Spirit to go where they don't want to go. He says, the sign of the Spirit's presence is not, I'm really thankful you're here, but I don't want to go there. And so what we notice is the Spirit always moves us beyond the places we actually feel most comfortable. It's really interesting that earlier on, one of the classic examples of this, as I was rereading Acts, is found in Acts chapter 9. There's this time where God encounters Saul on the road to Damascus, but then God says to Ananias, hey, I want you to go and speak to Saul. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. It, we can pass by that, but it's such a funny interaction. God says to Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. And Saul and Ananias says to God, Lord, I don't know if you've heard the rumors at all that have been floating around, but this guy, like he's kind of killing us. That's probably not the best idea. That is the worst thing we could possibly do. And yet God says to Ananias, no, I want you to go there. We see that here with Peter going to Cornelius. I'm not sure that's where I should be. See, the Holy Spirit, if we respond to him, isn't there just to make us feel better. It always compels us to go to the places that might make us uncomfortable. As I said before, it's always going to people who might feel on the outside that they're welcome to be in the family. Just before Christmas, we did a series on hospitality and Rob Miller in his sermon had this beautiful reflection where he said, if we're truly to practice welcome to the stranger, then that will be disruptive to us. It will actually be scary. See, often we have this idyllic view of welcoming the stranger that seems really lovely, but actually it's disrupting to us. And if we're totally honest, as I reflected on this, most of my life, my decisions are based on what makes me feel comfortable. But the Spirit always leads us to places. So when I think about where I'm meant to live or where I'm meant to go, is it first based on comfort or is it actually based on what Jesus is saying to me? Will we listen to the nudge of the Spirit? As I was praying for our community this week and I was thinking about this theme throughout Acts, I was actually wondering if a few of us at St. Clair have actually felt the nudge of the Spirit in this last season. And the question is, will we be willing to respond to that? And maybe one of the first steps is to share that with a friend. I know as soon as I talk about that, you know if you've had that nudge, but it can feel scary. It can feel a little bit terrifying. But what if you were willing to share that with someone? I think this is what God is asking me to do. 
One of the other things as we listen to the response of the Spirit is to be willing to pay attention. I think, as I said, to move out of even our circle of people that we feel most comfortable with. Obviously, this is probably beyond COVID and later on because we have our own bubbles and we're not able to do that. But would we notice those people who are different to us? Sometimes people would come to me on a Sunday and talk about uh, Sinclair being more diverse and culturally diverse. I would often say, I totally agree we need to be. But how many times on a Sunday morning when someone new comes in, do we take the time to notice and go over and welcome them in? So much of the nudge of the Spirit is us being willing to pay attention. As the story unfolds and Peter shares this vision that he's had, verse 34 and 30 to 36 says this, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. It seems pretty obvious, but this is a dramatic statement. Peter is saying, oh, God doesn't just favour Israel, but you're now all included in this. He even uses the phrase Lord of all. That's pretty controversial. In fact, in Acts 11, he has to go back to Jerusalem and say to them, you won't believe this, but as I was preaching about Jesus, the Gentiles received the same Holy Spirit we got and are now part of the promise. There's a deep humility in us when we recognize that part of the church or these people might be as much part of what God wants to do as we are. One of the beautiful, annoying things you find in pastoral life is, oh, God is blessing them and I don't always agree with their theology. See, God is often working amongst people who are very different to us because God does not show favoritism, but welcomes us all to be part of this. So the Holy Spirit comes on all the people listening to Peter And then right at the end of Acts 10, there's this little verse that, again, we can skip over to move into Acts 11. Verse 48 says this. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. What's happening here isn't just the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit, but this is a family starting to be interconnected. See, often people mention this and say, oh, now this is where the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. But this is also where God's people become a family truly from different backgrounds and traditions. The Gentiles are baptized. Baptism is always a symbol of being integrated into the family. And then Peter stays with Cornelius to spend time with his community. What we're talking about here is true relationship, not just an acknowledgement of the other, but an intertwining of the stories together. Mother Teresa says, we have no peace because we've forgotten we belong to each other. This week I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Aisha. She's an amazing black leader who leads the Toronto House of Prayer. And we were talking this week and I did the awkward thing of being a 
white male when I said to her, hey, can I ask you about what's going on in the world with racial injustice? And is it okay to ask you a bunch of questions? I feel kind of awkward because I know a lot of white people are trying to ask questions. And I did this whole tiptoeing around this conversation. And then Aisha stopped me and she said, Matt, we're friends. We were friends long before this. And friendship's the starting point. There's family and relationship there. So of course I want to talk to you about it. And I would love to share with your community some of the things that I've experienced. But it's because we're friends and there's relationship. See, this isn't tokenism. This is long-term relationship of Peter and Cornelius intertwining their lives together. Dr. Willie Jennings, who I referenced earlier, says this. If a world caught up in the unrelenting exchange system of violence was to be overcome, then here was the very means God would use to overcome violence by the introduction of a new reality of belonging that drew together different peoples into a way of life that intercepted ancient bonds and redrew them and redrew them around the body of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. See what Willie Jennings is saying, the way the world be transformed, the violent, aggressive, fractured world, is by a group of people from different backgrounds coming together as family around the person of Jesus. As we think about reimagining church, that's what we're talking about that we would have a fresh vision of what Jesus' church would look like. For those of us who want to give up, I would encourage you and say, Jesus is always building his church. He's longing for us to enter in, to lay down some of our assumptions and false assessments and come together to truly be this family. If we have anything to offer the world, this is what it is is what we see from Acts chapter 10 onwards is this beautiful expansion that has gone to all of the world ourselves included we are part of this story and so are so many others around the world as I close out this morning I was trying to think of how to pull together this series I just wanted to give a couple of practical things that I was thinking through one is I'd encourage you during this summer, we're going to be moving into a series in the Psalms of the next few weeks and into the summer months, but I'd really encourage you to read again through the book of Acts and prayerfully pause as you read it and ask, what does it mean that we are the church and this is our story? Maybe come to the book of Acts again with fresh eyes yourself to truly understand. Sometimes we come at it from different points and not fully embed ourselves in Acts itself. So I'd encourage you to do that this summer. As I close out the message this morning, I'm just going to pray for us. But I would love you, as we pray, to maybe ask two questions. One is, is there a place I feel the nudge of the Spirit? Where I'm being called out to a people or a place that may actually feel uncomfortable. Choose that line earlier that we would be sent maybe where we don't want to go. So is there someone or a people that I'm being sent to? Maybe it's a person that comes to mind in your life that God is calling you to go to. Maybe the other prayer is, Lord, would you take these false assumptions that I have of the church and reimagine in my life what the church could be? Why don't we pray 
together. Jesus, the church is yours. We remind ourselves throughout the New Testament that it was your idea, that you're the head and it belongs to you. Jesus, as we think about what the church might be, would you allow us to give you our false assumptions and our false ideas? Maybe the things we've inherited that weren't of you. Lord, we hand them to you. And we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us a new vision of what the body of Christ could be. In this next season, in the midst of COVID and the challenges in the world, that the people of God, the children of God, as Romans 8 would say, would finally be revealed in the world. All of creation is longing for your children to be who they are. And Lord, for those of us this morning who know that nudge, we just have that little sense of the Spirit calling us to people. We can see their names, their faces. Would you send us, move us out of the places we feel most comfortable to be led by the Spirit, knowing that you are with us when we go. In Jesus' name, amen.